This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Good afternoon and welcome. Stakeholders are complaining that Bill 7 is set to pass into law without input from the public. Now, this is the bill, as you heard in Bob's News, that would allow patients waiting for long-term care in hospital to be sent to nursing homes that are not of their choosing. And the government has given it the somewhat Orwellian name, More Beds, Better Care Act. But many doubt that that will be the result. Now, the long-term care minister has assured us that no one will be forced to go to a long-term care home they don't want. The premier has assured us those people won't be charged the $1,800 a day uninsured rate. But we haven't been told how much they will be charged. And by the numbers, about 6,000 patients are in hospital waiting to be placed somewhere else. Less than a third need to go into nursing homes. And there's nothing in this bill about increasing access to home care, which would also clear many of those beds and cheaper, by the way. Also, nursing homes have warned that they are more short-staffed than the hospitals. So is this just setting up our elders for another catastrophe if, or more likely when, another wave hits? We have made repeated requests to talk to long-term care minister Paul Calandra. Uh, I really wish he'd talk to us. I promise I don't bite. Um, what do you think, people? The numbers 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And right now, let's go to Dr. Samir Sinha, Director of Geriatrics at Mount Sinai and the University Health Network, and France Gelina, Ontario NDP MPP and health critic. Hello and welcome to you both. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Uh, let us begin with Dr. Sinha. So um, uh, what do you make of uh, the fact that this is getting pushed through real fast? Dr. Sinha? Yeah. No, I, it's just, you know, it's honestly, it, it's just mind-blowing to me the fact that this is the first piece of legislation that I know of, and, and my colleague can correct me if I'm wrong, that has been rushed through at such a pace um, and specifically not um, even allowing for committee hearings to occur where where concerns can be raised by both the opposition party, by members of the public, by experts such as myself, um, who can actually help, you know, really give clarity to the government about what's challenging and wrong about this legislation and what needs to be improved in it. Because right now, what currently is being rammed through um, at such an unprecedented rate um, is just, it's problematic in so many ways, especially in the fact that it's stripping the fundamental human right of people to have consent over um, a process that could determine where they will live for the rest of their lives. Uh, the government says they have consulted stakeholders, hospital CEOs, people who run nursing homes. Uh, France, do you have any idea who they might have been talking to? Uh, we know that they have talked to the owner and shareholders of private for-profit long-term care homes who have a tough time filling up their homes. Most Long-term care homes, there's about 628 of them in Ontario, have long wait lists. Uh, so Finlandia, in my writing, has 108 beds and 565 people waiting for those beds. But when you come to the big chain, to the extended care, to the Chartwell, have some of very old houses, um, long-term care homes that have not been renovated for a long time, that only have one bathroom for for an entire floor, that kind of stuff. They don't have long wait lists, and they have been consulted at length, and they want people to be forced to go to their homes. 
Hmm. Um, Dr. Sinha, does that jive with what you know? Absolutely, because uh, uh, a colleague just sent me a memo from the Assistant Deputy Minister the other day of long-term care to all the members of the long-term care industries, letting them know that right now, uh, during the pandemic, homes that couldn't maintain a 97% occupancy rate uh, were basically made whole. The government said, you know what, look, it's been a tough pandemic. We know there are many reasons why your beds might not be full, so we'll actually make you whole under these circumstances. As of October 1st, so literally one month from today, um, those subsidies and that decision end. If you do not maintain a 97% occupancy rate, um, you will not be able to get full funding for your home. And as um, you know, NPP, Jelena's just said, for example, um, right now we have two-thirds of Ontarians who want to be in long-term care has chosen one of the um, one of the not-for-profit and municipal homes as their first choice. They represent one-third of our homes in Ontario. Two-thirds of our homes are these for-profit homes. Some of them have long wait lists and they have good reputations. But the majority of the homes where we have empty beds right now are these for-profit homes that are at risk of not maintaining a 97% capacity. So I don't want to be paranoid, but this legislation is rather convenient because if people don't want to go there willingly, we now have a mechanism to force people into those beds that help a lot of these providers maintain a 97% capacity. And I just saw the notice that came out from Siena to their shareholders the other day saying that while we were only at about a 95 or 96% capacity, we are now very confident that we will be able to reach the 97% cap. And I wonder why they're very confident. Because there's legislation that's being rammed through um, that will ensure that this happens regardless of whether an individual wants to be there or not. I, I uh, just want to make a couple of points. A week ago, we were talking to Donna Duncan, and uh, she is the CEO of the Long-Term Care Association, which represents uh, mostly, I believe, for-profit homes. And she was also really concerned about the issue of violating people's rights, uh, despite the fact that she represents for profit homes. And um, uh, yeah, um, what you're telling us is is really interesting. What about uh, labor shortages in long-term care? I mean, aren't they in worse shape than hospitals? Absolutely. I mean, they're absolutely in, in worse shape because, first of all, you know, if you're if you're working in a publicly funded long-term care home, which all of our homes are publicly funded, nurses and personal support workers get paid significantly less than if they were working in a publicly funded hospital. Um, and so they are, if we think we're having labor shortages right now in hospitals, they're having even greater labor shortages. So one thing that Donna Duncan, who primarily represents the for-profit homes, has identified that our homes are really struggling with staffing, just like our hospitals um, are as well. So it's going to be very hard to care for these people who are going to be moved into these homes because the homes that are tending to struggle with staffing more tend to be some of the homes that have these empty beds. And right now, homes aren't allowed to close. Um, homes can't actually deny necessarily um, um, getting certain admissions coming through their doors. They just have to cope, even if they don't have sufficient staffing. So while she has indicated to you that she's concerned about this bill violating human rights, the Ontario Long-Term Care Association is the only association, not the not-for-profit group Advantage, that is kind of saying that they support this bill. Um, so you can say one thing, but if your association is supporting it, you're principally supporting it because it's going to help your, your members' bottom lines. And I think that's what I hate about this entire piece of legislation and the way the government is acting. It's been completely duplicitous. No, 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 you can't be forced out of a home. This is what the minister says. Yet this act says we can actually go behind your back. We can go negotiate with a home that has a bed up to 300 kilometers away in some cases. And we can actually arrange a bed offer. Um, we can actually accept the bed offer on your behalf. And then if you decline the bed offer, as has been revealed, you could be charged up to $1,800 a day. The Premier, um, I've, that was so my next question. The Premier has assured us it won't be 1800 bucks a day. $1,799. $1,799. Is that your let's, view, let's, let's, France? Do you have any idea? I mean, I think we, I remember... Uh, yeah, we questioned uh, Premier Ford about this very issue. That was the first thing we did in question period this morning, and he refused to answer. 
he answered, he talked about all sorts of stuff except for this. So when we ask a direct question and they don't answer, uh, we read between the lines that, yes, in, in community hospital, it could be a thousand bucks rather than 1800. In small rural hospital, it could be 800 rather than 18, but you will still be charged. And by the way, uh, we voted on it about five minutes ago. And it, uh, the bill has passed third reading. It oh. is now law in Ontario that frail elderly people are the only people in Ontario who have lost their rights to give consent. They have lost their right to give consent to be assessed. They have lost their rights to give consent for people to have access to their uh, medical information and share that medical information with other people. They are being treated like like secondhand citizens. Why are we um, taking apart the, the the rights of everybody to be treated with respect because you are frail and because you are elderly because you are in a in a hospital? This bill just took away your right to consent. I can't believe that Ontario has passed a bill like this. Everybody deserves respect, and right now. There is a segment of our society that has their respect taken away by their government. Now, I've spoken to some people who are actually in favor of this. They say that as a temporary measure, it's better than being in a hospital and and something's got to give. What do you say to those people, Dr. Sinha? I don't think, you know, um, Franz or I, would ever say that we want people to be in hospital and be waiting longer than they need to be. We do have lots of people who are waiting in hospital. In fact, there are more people waiting in hospital as what we call ALC patients waiting for home care in their own homes, waiting for rehab beds, waiting for palliative care beds or hospices. Um, Then we actually have waiting for long-term care. Um, so maybe we'll pass a bill tomorrow stripping their rights to choose where they actually need to go. You know, the, the real problem here right now is this is a government that has decelerated funding increases into the home and community care budget for its original four years. That meant that our home care wait list... Dr. Sinha? Over- Dr. Sinha? Uh- I'm so sorry there. Um my my ear muted my uh, conversation there. Okay. Um, where did you lose me there, Libby? Uh, you, you, uh, that was going to be my next question. Home care. I heard nothing about home care. And I'm sure that a lot of those 6,000 people are waiting uh, to be released to go home, but with support. Absolutely. And this is the key thing is here are the fundamental issues that we have at the moment. We actually have a lot of empty beds in our hospitals right now. And the reason why they're empty is because we actually don't have the nurses there anymore to provide that routine care. So we have fewer hospital beds that are effectively in operation now. And so instead of actually repealing Bill 124, instead of actually capping what these ruinous agencies are charging hospitals, um, you know, to try and find nurses to staff their existing beds, the government decided to target these individuals and call them the problem and that that taking away their rights will now be a solution. It's just this is a red herring to actually not doing the important things that will actually immediately fix some of the problems we're having in our hospitals, but also recognizing that so many people wouldn't even need to be in hospital and be waiting for long-term care if there were adequate amounts of home care being provided. So we actually know what the solutions are, but I, you know, I believe that part of the incentive here to ram this bill through is to make sure that for-profit providers that can't fill their beds by providing good, adequate quality care now have a new safeguard in place to actually have their beds filled, whether people want to go there or not, in the same way that this is the same government, I have to remind us, that actually put a liability shield on all Ontario long-term care homes to protect them from getting sued, you know, for COVID issues as well. And this is a government that has not that has not fined a single home under its new legislation and has not rescinded anybody's actual license, despite some of the travesties that we've witnessed in our long-term care sector. Uh, to, it, to home care, France, let me just ask you a question, please. And, it, you know, even before the pandemic, we were aware of the same problem in home care, labor shortages exacerbated by the pandemic. 
so uh, uh, it's it's the same problem. There aren't people to work. Am I wrong? Well, um, I can tell you that there are tens of thousands of PSWs in Ontario right now who would love to provide the care that their patients need at home, who are good at providing home care, who love their jobs, who love their patients and wants to continue to do this, but they cannot make ends meet working in home care, so they are presently working at Tim Horton or Giant Tiger. They are in every community. They are PSW who would love to do this. Remember Mike Harris privatized the home care system, was going to make it better, faster, cheaper. They did none of this. A person, a PSW working in home care uh, can keep the 90% of every elderly Ontarians who wants to age at home, who could be safe at home. We have the knowledge, the skills to support them in their own home where they want to be. And we have the staff with the knowledge to do this, but we have private a for-profit company who pays them barely above minimum wage, who don't pay them for the travel time between one home to the next. In my writing, they show me 800 kilometers every two weeks. Do you know how long it takes to drive 800 kilometers in northern Ontario every two weeks? Hours a day. They don't get paid for those hours a day. So they come to me and say, Franz, I work 10 hours. I only got paid for seven barely above minimum wage, I can do a shift at Tim Horton for seven hours and make more money so I can buy my daughter the new skates that she wants. That's how we can fix this. The government today could say to the uh, to those for-profit home care company, mandate 70% personal full-time jobs, well-paid, with benefits, a few sick days, maybe even dream of a pension plan and problem solved. We have the staff right here in Ontario right now to fill those jobs. They work elsewhere because they cannot pay the rent and feed their kids when they work for home care. But yet, the Bay Shores of this world make hundreds of millions of dollars in profit every three months. Okay. Um, so where does this leave us, Dr. Sinha? Um, we should take a moment to reflect on what just happened today. You know, I, you know, I really commend, you know, our MPPs who tried to fight this bill. I commend the media like yourself, Libby, and, and all the other outlets who are, who are openly trying to have a dialogue about this because it's just, it's a travesty that today some of our most vulnerable citizens have actually lost their actual basic right to consent. Um, around making a decision around where they might want to live for the rest of their lives. And when we allow this to happen by simply by simply targeting a group of people, calling them the problem, rather than actually calling out what the issues are and doing what needs to be done, I'm really afraid about what this government can do next. Um, because if they can do this to this population, they can do this to others. Um, and, you know, silence and, and complicity, you know, will lead to more death and suffering. France, where does this leave us? What's your next move? I would say I I don't want to take people's hopes away. We live in a democracy. Yes, the frail elderly people do not have a voice for themselves, but we can be their voice. If enough of us speak with one voice and say they need to gain their uh, rights back, they need to be treated with respect, the government will have to listen. We just have to to push our language forward, to push our wishes forward, and to be the voice of frail elderly people who don't have a voice. Okay, thank you so much, Dr. Samir Sinha and Franche Jelina. Bye-bye. 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 You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Schneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. We have an update on a story we brought you last week on that virulent anti-Semite who got $133,000 in federal money to teach others about anti-racism. Well, the Laith Marouf scandal 
is actually six times as bad as we first calculated. Since the swearing-in of the Trudeau government in 2015, his Community Media Action Center, a group uh, centered in his home, has collected over $600,000 in federal contracts, as well as thousands from the Canada Summer Jobs Program. So how did this happen? The Prime Minister is promising a full review. What do you think? Uh, Are you convinced that we will get the right answers from there? The number is 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-744-740. And in the meantime, I'm sure we can get some answers from Jonathan Kay, editor of Quillette. Hi, Jonathan. Hi, how are you? Fine, how are you? I can't complain. Okay, so um, you uh, were, have been following this story, and it's based on work, we have to say, by a guy named Mark Goldberg. So what did you dig up on uh, uh, Laith Maroof's uh, excellent skills in getting government money? Uh, well, look, if it weren't for this guy's <laughs> horrifying uh, political views and his views about not just Jews, but like French Canadians and Americans and, uh, and Canada itself. Uh, I mean, he's an absolute genius when it comes to getting money out of the government. Um, and even I interviewed some of his friends in college back, you know, he went to Concordia University in Montreal, my hometown, uh, I guess more than 20 years ago. And, and even then he was known as this guy, like when he worked at the campus radio station and he just like, had this knack for getting money out of every imaginable department. And, and he's built his whole career on that, even as he has this parallel career as an absolute hate monger, um, tweeting out, uh, and not just on Twitter, but podcasts and uh, Facebook, uh, just absolutely horrifying things, including about the country that's giving him all this money. Uh, so it's, it's quite a story. So, yes, uh, Canada is colonial, and I've seen him say things about uh, uh, white Jewish people should be, I don't know, they're human bags of feces and, yeah. uh, um, and all kinds of other things. I mean, how is it that no one caught this? Well, um, <laughs> that's a good question, because he... He was admirably forthright. I mean, you know, as I say, his, his views are horrifying, but like it wasn't, I don't know of a case like this. He wasn't trying to hide it. It's not like one of these cases where a politician runs for office and he's elected, but it turns out there's all these tweets that he deleted, but someone has screenshots of them. Like this guy was absolutely un- unapologetic, so much so that a year ago when his Twitter account was deleted for anti-Semitism, he went out and got a new Twitter account so that he could tweet yet more anti-Semitic things. And again, this is when he'd been on the public payroll for years. Um, no one in Ottawa seemed to have cottoned on to this, in part because he was just an absolute master of using like, the language of anti-racism to present himself as like, you know, I'm against imperialism, I'm against apartheid, I'm against all this. Like, ironically, it's, it's very similar to the same language he was using for his anti-Semitic rants. He just changed a few words around, because when, when he was ranting about Israel, he would talk about, like, the imperial apartheid uh, genocidal state of, of Israel. Uh, but then, like, you know, when he was applying for grant money, he'd just change Israel to Canada um, and just use exactly the same language. And, of course, that's, an, that's like, approved language. People, people use that kind of language in the classroom. Um, our own prime minister calls Canada, like, a accuses it of genocide and such. So his, although his language is quite horrifying and, and bigoted, he didn't really have to change that many words in the language he used to speak the officially sanctioned jargon of, um, of grant applicants. And I think that's how he got his money. Is this just a matter of uh, federal officials bending over backwards to be politically correct? Or is it politicians trying to appeal to certain constituencies. I mean, there's got to be something to it, or are they just lazy and didn't, didn't bother to look, I'd do a Google search on the guy? Um, so, I, you know, there's some who say, oh, um, you know, the liberals are anti-Semites and they secretly agree with this guy. I don't agree with that. I don't, I, I don't, I mean, I have many, many criticisms of Trudeau and the liberals, but I don't think they're, you know, anti-Semitic or anything like that. I think, um, 
what happened with this anti-racism fund, which is how he got this, this latest $133,000 grant, which has since been rescinded by the government, um, I, I think the Trudeau government created this big slush fund, this so-called anti-racism slush fund. Uh, I guess this is 2020, I think they did it. And, and then they, they had to give all this money out. And so there were dozens and dozens of groups that were asking for it. They couldn't properly vet all the groups. And some of these groups, as with the CMAC, it was, it was, I mean, it was basically run by one guy. It was run by this Leith Maruf anti-Semite. And so they were just kind of looking to shovel this money out the door. Um, it was, you know, it had an attractive name. It was Anti-Racism Fund, run by the Department of Heritage. Uh, everyone supports anti-racism, right? So just all these people came, you know, came with their palms out saying, you know, I'm an anti-racist, give me money. And, um, you, you know, you just had these bureaucrats saying, oh, this sounds good, this doesn't sound good, and just, just giving out the cash. Um, it, it, it raises the question of, of why these programs don't get more scrutiny when they're created, because they sound good, right? The press release sounds good. It's like anti-racism, sounds great. But then the kind of people who become profiteers of these programs, often they're just people who are really good at grant applications. And Leif Maruf was a skill. horrible anti-Semite, but he's, he was really good at applying for government grants. It's like his special skill. Uh, and uh, apparently, when he started getting this money, he wasn't even a, a Canadian citizen. Well, according to his own Facebook page, he became a Canadian citizen in, I think, 2020. So I think for this program, um, he, I think he, he was a Canadian citizen. However, he got half a million dollars for appearing before the CRTC to lecture everybody about anti-racism and community media. That was between 2016 and, uh, and I think 2020, um, although there might have been some overlap over 2020. Um, but during that period, no, he was not a Canadian citizen. By his own account, he was still a Syrian citizen. Um, uh, yeah, he, he was a Syrian citizen when he, um, during, during most of this, this stuff he did. I mean, and that's kind of incredible that you don't even have to live in Canada. Because he, he's been living in Beirut since 2000, for, for three years. Again, by his own account, he goes on all these podcasts and he identifies himself and has the last three years as a Beirut-based correspondent. I mean, that's incredible. Now, the other part of it is in terms of accountability. Okay, so the prime minister said there will be a full review. Who knows when? Uh, Minister Ahmed Hussein, minister of diversity, has spoken to it. Uh, But uh, the heritage minister, Pablo Rodriguez, I mean, it's his department that forked over that money, and and he he won't even be bothered to comment about it. Yeah, um, <laughs> um, I mean it's actually kind of interesting to watch the liberal damage control machine spring into action because they didn't comp- so Ahmed Hussein, who's the minister of diversity, um, diversity inclusion and, and housing, in fact. Um, we know that he was notified that he had an anti-Semite on the Department of Canadian Heritage payroll. He was notified in July. We know this because another Liberal MP, uh, Anthony Housefather, has gone public with that. Um, And then what happened was um, the Liberals just decided, okay, well, Ahmed Hussein's going to take the rap for this, even though it's Pablo Rodriguez's Department of Heritage. And, um, and that was their strategy for a week or two. And so Trudeau wasn't going to touch it. Rodriguez wasn't going to touch it. And then I think yesterday they decided, no, this has gotten out of hand. And so now they've done the opposite, where, like, everyone is, is releasing a statement. And not only releasing a statement, now uh, they're all demanding that MPs and other political parties also denounce Maruf. So they've gone from pretending this didn't exist at all to then saying, okay, well, it's just Ahmed Hussein's fault to then saying, well, actually, every MP in Parliament has to denounce this guy. So, like, there's been this very, at least three different phases, or arguably four different phases of liberal damage control. Uh, it was, nothing to see here was, was one. And then it was, um, okay, well, it's one guy's fault. Um, and, and then it was, okay, well, it's the entire Liberal Party's fault. And then it was, it's all of Parliament's fault, which is a brilliant strategy, You're just diffusing it. It's kind of like when Trudeau got caught with blackface, right? It was, well, this is a learning moment for racism in Canada. Well, it's not, actually, it's not a learning moment for 35 million Canadians. It's a learning moment for one guy who got caught. But the Liberal Party is really good at this, at saying, well, it's not us, right? It's just, it's like this sort of 
thing that's out there and we all have to denounce it. Um, it's, 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 I mean, again, I have sort of like a strange admiration for how slick they are at, at this rhetorical tactic. Well, okay, so uh, where does this leave us? Will there be heightened vigilance against throwing money out? <laughs> uh, I believe there will. I believe there's... <laughs> the Liberal Party always has heightened vigilance in regard to things that make the Liberal Party look terrible. Uh, <laughs> and now that it's been established that this is like a risk and a really bad look, um, I think, yeah, uh, the, like the word has gone out, uh, use Google, make sure you're not giving money uh, to crazy whack jobs um, who, who are going to embarrass the party. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I do think it's a learning experience for the Liberal Party, not, not necessarily, um, you know, because they've, um, you know, they, they've sort of converted to the cause of angels, but because uh, it's standard political self-preservation. This has been a major scandal for the Liberals, and they tried to ignore it, and they couldn't, and now they've got to clean up the mess. Okay, major scandal, okay. Thank you so much for that, Jonathan Kay. appreciate that. Thank you. Bye-bye. Okay, we are taking another break. And when we come back, uh, we're going to talk about Uber. We're going to talk about taxis and training for drivers. It turns out that Uber has been lobbying the city. They're not happy with how quickly uh, driver training is rolling out. And uh, it's hurting their bottom line when we come back. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Zneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Have you noticed how hard it is to get a taxi lately and how expensive an Uber is if you get one? Well, in late 2021, council, city council, stopped issuing new licenses for taxis and companies like Uber and Lyft until mandatory driver training was in place. But the launch of the program was delayed, apparently, as the city struggled to attract qualified course providers. Now, the result was a months-long shutdown of new workers joining that industry, which had been losing drivers by the thousands. And I'm, I'm referring to the ride-hailing and not necessarily the taxis here. So all of this apparently led to major lobbying efforts by Uber, a company with quite the track record for being a bad corporate citizen. And they wouldn't appear on the show, but they sent a lengthy statement, including, quote, since May 2021, we've consistently advocated for a timely rollout of the program because we believe training is an important step for drivers to get on the road, unlock flexible earning opportunities and decrease wait times and provide safe, affordable rides for all Torontonians. That's what they sent me. I have to say, uh, on uh, a a recent night, uh, the city looked pretty dead to me. I got an Uber and it was $27 for a less than 10-minute ride. Uh, That would have been probably $13 if I could have got a cab. Uh, So there you go. Uh, Do you have that experience or are you a driver? What do you have to say about the situation? I know that uh, uh, drivers were really hurt during the pandemic, and probably I would guess that a lot left the industry and didn't come back. The numbers, 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And now I am joined by Councillor James Pasternak, who is in your Ward 6, York Centre, and Christine Hubbard, Operations Manager at Beck Taxi. Thanks for joining us. Welcome. Pleasure, Libby. Good afternoon. Thanks, Libby. Uh, so let's begin with Councillor Pasternak. What's the situ- situation now? I gather that there are uh, pro- licensed providers now to give these courses. Am I correct? Well, Yes, I mean, right now uh, we're bringing on stream, I think, four uh, companies that we feel meet the city standards to to offer training. Uh, it's going to be have, have to be watched closely. I mean, I've ridden in taxis, licensed taxis and Uber drivers, and there's no doubt training uh, is a priority. The, the problem here is that uh, it never, the training 
uh, modules and approach to this never really got off to a good start uh, with a two-year inexplicable de- delay uh, by our division, uh, and, uh, and then it's just been cascading ever since. Christine Hubbard, uh, is the delay in this, tra- in this training the reason it's so hard to get a cab, or are there other reasons? So, uh, no, I don't think that's the only reason. The, you know, it's a whole host of reasons. We are still at Beck Taxi. We're about seven or 800 vehicles representing one or two drivers short of what was a 1,900-vehicle company prior to the pandemic. So we are working with just over half the fleet um, that we worked with pre-pandemic. We're seeing that they're still coming back. We're up from the 300 vehicles, which is all that we're logging in um, when the pandemic started. But there are a lot of reasons. One is, you know, for example, Bet Taxi never ever did allow drivers to work without training. So throughout this period, 2016 through to now, um, any driver in a Beck taxi was required to attend Centennial College's one-week training course that included an in-car defensive driving component. We put through, I think, a 1,000 drivers um, between 2017 and, and the pandemic, start of the pandemic. Um, Uber and Lyft were putting drivers in vehicles with no training at all. Um, for us, it wasn't the that the training components stopped, that we couldn't hire drivers. When the pandemic started, training courses closed. Our Centennial College, for example, closed. So we weren't able to hire drivers or bring drivers on because training, as the counselor said, is so important. Um, we didn't do that until essentially the pandemic was declared almost over anyway. Uh, and let me ask you this, Christine, as well. Uh, is there a problem with dispatchers? Because uh, the last few times I tried, uh, the, the phone wasn't even picked up. Yeah, so we are, like everyone else, is facing um, staff shortages. Having said that, we're also facing a huge increase in demand. Because as you said, um, the Uber ride that costs three times as much as a taxi would, we're seeing a huge return uh, in demand. So we're kind of facing you know, something we hadn't seen before, especially in this city, that, you know, prior to Uber and Lyft's um, entrance, we already had too many taxis in Toronto. But what we're finding now is the demand is is huge, much more than the supply we have to meet that demand. I mean, at first, when I first encountered this, I thought, well, gee, uh, that uh, sounds like uh, Uber and Lyft. They sucked people in with very low prices mm-hmm. originally. And, and and now, well, now they're charging, they're gouging because they can. Right. Uh, Councillor Pasternak, is that how you see it? Yeah, there's there's no doubt there's weakness at the um, at the supply side. Um, I was trying to get uh, you know a taxi recently and nobody would pick up. Um, I'm not going to mention the name of the company. It was just a long time on, on hold and a long time to wait for for the cab as well. I haven't um, seen any so, cab. Sorry, I haven't seen any any cab company but Beck operating at all. Uh, Christine, is that right? Uh, so we are definitely the, you know, represent the majority of taxis in the city. There's no question about it. And what I would say is we do have the automation that Uber and Lyft have. You don't have to pick up the phone to call us for a taxi. We have web ordering. You can use our our app to order. So it doesn't actually require that phone call. I, I think, you know, it's used thousands of times a day. And I still think there's just this belief that Uber equals ordering by an app and taxis equal calling by the phone um, for a lot of people. But that's just not the case. Beck Taxi launched uh, our app in 2012 prior to Uber's launch in this city. So I think there is still, because of Uber's ability, and, and back to your point, Libby, yes, their intention was to become the monopoly and It's the age-old historic plan. So under the banner of innovation, they wanted to introduce themselves at low rates, pull in all of the customers, and then they could charge whatever they want. So regardless of the supply, the expensive rides were always going to happen. They're just blaming the city for what they were always going to do. Right. Uh, And My question about the other is that even if I reach a dispatcher and order a cab, there's no guarantee that the cab is coming. So, and and uh, at least if I reach a dispatcher, at some point they'll call back and say, there's no cab coming. 
so that's right. why I don't use the app. Well, the, the app actually has the same impact. So when you're waiting for a taxi to be assigned, uh, once that it's, it's the same as when you call a dispatcher, so to speak. Um, it's once the vehicle is assigned. Once, once we have an available car, and you can see that updating in real time on the app, or you can wait for a callback uh, from a dispatcher. But you, it does actually have the same effect. Now, I will say... 90% of the time that we're in operation, our wait times are still five to seven minutes, if not three to five minutes. But it's those peak periods. It's when everyone wants to go out or there are, I think it was one weekend recently where there were seven giant festivals and events and the subways were down and, 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 and. So you will find um, at the most peak periods, which is, of course, when... When we want to go out. When you want to go out, when the transit is down. And we've been seeing that consistently every weekend, um, not to mention just unexpected or unplanned failures of the system. Um, you know, it's those periods, but we still don't surge price. So that would be the option for us. Well, we could turn up the rates and we could turn into Uber or Lyft, which we are allowed to do, but we've committed not to. Because while we, will, we won't discount on the backs of drivers the way they do, we also won't surge price when people need us the most. I, I thought uh, you needed to uh, have the city's permission for the rates. No, we actually are allowed. They provided us that in order to so-called level the playing field, which is still the funniest thing I've ever heard, because there's nothing level about it. That was one of the things they offered. Well, hey, you know what? If as a taxi company, you want to raise the rates or you want to discount the rates, as long as the customer can see the rate before, so we could publish it on our app and say, okay, today this taxi driver is going to make $5 for the same trip that he did yesterday for 10 We're just going to cut his income in half, which is what Uber does. Or tomorrow, when Libby orders, today it was you know, $20, tomorrow it's going to be 50 because we feel like it. But as long as you agree, we're allowed to do it. We've committed not to doing it. Okay, let's take a call from Barry in North York. Hello, Barry. Afternoon. Um, I will never take Uber because uh, there I've seen too many instances where they've taken advantage of the public. I'm looking at one right now. $1,100 Uber bill, Edmonton man, child calling for change. I remember that particular um, instance where he was drunk and um, he, they took advantage of him. They, they uh, drove him from one end of Edmonton to the other and they charged him $1,100. And here in Toronto, as you recall, probably about a year ago, I think it was maybe more, um, the subway was shut down for some sort of reason, and uh, nobody could get a taxi, the Ubers, they charged double what they usually did. Oh, yeah, <laughs> they do that all the time. Barry, thank you very much for your call. Welcome, uh, have a great afternoon. Okay, uh, Councillor Pasternak, uh, do you foresee... Uh, any further uh, possible regulation of Uber and Lyft? No, not really. I mean, I, I think it's 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 basically unfair to withhold the licensing of of our ride industry, whether it's taxi or Uber. We wouldn't do that to bus drivers. We wouldn't do that to truckers. We wouldn't do that to coach operators or crane operators. Um, this was a situation in, in which council gave direction to staff in 2019 to put together through a third-party training modules, and nothing happened for two years, and then it went out, and it wasn't adequate, and they had to go back to the drawing board, and now they're trying to do it uh, again. Uh, so it's a, it's a work in pros, process. We want uh, we want the the roads to be safe. We want our our um, our ride our, our ride services, whether it's Uber or or, or taxi, uh, to be the best drivers there are. Look, if if it was London, England. Many of these drivers would be uh, training for three to four years to get their their uh, taxi license to drive a black cab. And at the same time, the city has an obligation to the taxi industry. We're the ones who issued the licenses in the first place. And, and the big mistake, I wasn't on council at the time, was allowing them to be traded in the in the open marketplace and you can't you can't trade a liquor license you can't trade a hunting license you can't trade a, a fishing license uh, you can't trade a driver's license so everyone was happy when the license plates were worth a few hundred thousand dollars but once the market collapsed then obviously the city uh was was blamed and maybe partially correctly uh, for that collapse but it should have when you issue a license, it should have never been able to be traded uh, in the mo uh, in the open marketplace the way it has been. 
I'd okay. love to jump in here if I could. Go ahead. Um, so it, I just I, I want to piggyback on some of the things that the counselor said, and I want to agree with and disagree with a lot of what he has said here. Um, a taxi license and a driver's license are two completely different things. A taxi license is a business. Because taxi cabs don't have a brick-and-mortar address, it's the value of that business is held in the business license, not in the license to operate, as in the case of being able to drive or trading that type of license. So the only reason that this city was able to, on the backs of largely immigrant communities, when they came here, the only way that the city was able to lean on them to build, pay for, and maintain this fantastic, actually, ground transportation system that exists here was the promise of a business. And that business, like any other, can be bought and sold. The city is to blame here when they decided to license unlimited drivers for a limited number of taxi cabs. And that's where the breakdown started. This is another call altogether. But that's, that's item number one. Item number two is we would stop licensing bus drivers. We would stop licensing truck drivers if they haven't been trained to drive. You wouldn't put someone in a TTC bus to drive if they haven't had the appropriate training. And this is precisely what our staff at City Hall has done. They ignored, to the councillor's point, direction by council. Not only did they ignore the direction to introduce training, they, in spite of that, continued to license people. And one of the four so-called training approved programs has sent 4,000 Uber and Lyft drivers onto our streets claiming to be trained only to find out it was a fake training course that has now been suspended. All of the drivers, yes. When was that? This month. All of the drivers were licensed. They're driving now. Staff's decision with, I don't know who on council supported this, is to not remove the licenses or pull the licenses back. It's to make sure they get trained before they renew those licenses in a year from now. Well, well, uh, fraudulent training? Is there are criminal charges? I mean... This is what we don't know. And I think it's something that has not made the news because it's completely the most egregious, embarrassing thing you could imagine. Here it is. It's a company called Driver Hub, claiming to be out of Australia. In Toronto, they had a Scarborough residential address. The online training that was approved by staff and supported by and promoted by Uber. So 4,000 people went through this so-called training. It was as low as 15 minutes to get through the online-only training. No in-car driving component, no, um, you know, nothing else. So all of those drivers or potential drivers were licensed by city staff only to find out when a complaint was made, what is this training and how is it possible that you're allowing this as something to determine the difference between safety and not safe. Wait a minute. In in this training programs, are, aren't there, uh, you know, don't you have to drive in them? Is that was the expectation, <laughs> but no. Our city is literally suggesting that they care about your safety and mine, but they don't. <laughs> so our training with Centennial College, one week in class, which could have been converted to some online, but an, a day in a car, and that's the breaking point. People failed the in-car driving component. The city has allowed companies to register as training schools without requiring this in-car driving component. So for Uber to send messages to the mayor or to council or to staff wondering what the holdup is, suddenly we have this new training that requires, there's zero accountability, zero monitoring. You have no idea who's logging in. It's done in 15 minutes. They've been issued licenses, and those licenses, instead of deciding this month this happened, instead of saying, oh, my gosh, these people aren't trained, we got to take these licenses back, they've said, let them carry on. So they're on the street right now. Let them carry on, and they'll have to take training before they renew. And these are the people who are lobbying for Uber. Uber paid some of these drivers to take the course. Okay. Uh, Councillor Pasternak, we're, we're almost out of time. I, I want you to respond to that. That's, uh, well, that's a heck of a story. I mean, uh, yes. No, that's, that's disturbing when, when fraud is committed. Of course, we have to condemn it. Everybody has to Are you aware to of this? It. To say that City Hall is not interested in safety, personal safety of, of passengers and ride services or its drivers is really disingenuous. Well, show, the, show the proof that, that there's care. We're very concerned about uh, safety. Are you aware of this, Councillor? 
Are you aware of this story? No. First you've heard? First I've heard. First I've heard. Um, Christine... So, you know, I, 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 but if we're talking about safety, uh, you know, and, I, and I'm a staunch supporter of the taxi industry, and I've given you the reasons why, because the city has an obligation to support our taxis, because we were the original issuance of licenses and the regulatory framework that created the industry. And we have, we have that, that moral obligation to support them. Uh, and, uh, and they were the first in. At the same time, government has to make sure that drivers and passengers are safe. And we need a proper uh, training module that keeps everybody safe as possible. Look, you know, maybe, maybe we should go back to the Ministry of Transportation and, and look, at, um, look at how people are getting their regular operator's license for, for, for personal vehicles. Um, you know, look, look at the carnage on our roads. Um, it's everywhere. Uh, so, so driving has gotten more dangerous, uh, more more chaotic, and the city is becoming more difficult to navigate for for our rideshare services and for our taxi industry. Uh, Christine Hubbard. Sorry, uh, we're just um, looking at the clock. I'm going to give you the last word. Where can we find more information that this course has been suspended? Uh, so Ben Spur with the Toronto Star actually did report on it. It didn't get a whole lot of attention. I can share that um, that article again. But it is it is very clear that this course was not vetted. It was not tested. They were able to launch. And to the councillor's point, we are living in the most congested um, dangerous driving, you know, I have two teenage daughters. They ride their bikes, they walk, they take the tra- transit. One of them is driving now, they take taxis. It is, as a person who lives in this city, absolutely embarrassing to me that city staff has gotten away with, the, um, with what they have. But to the point about Uber being disappointed, they got exactly what they wanted, hand-delivered by staff and council, when these 4,000 drivers were licensed in the last month or two and have been allowed to carry on driving on the road. And if, if, if any of us wonders what it means about the message we should be receiving, it's that care or safety, especially with Uber, but we all knew that, and this is why we turn to our regulator, is not important. Okay, I've got to cut things off there. Thank you so much, Christine Hubbard and Councillor James Pasternak. You're most welcome. Take care. All the best, Libby. All the best, Christine. You too. Thank you both. Okay, that's all the time we have for today. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.